0: Good
1: morning. This Welcome to we'll Wake the F Up on night. 101.5 UOM and FM. And we air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her, and I have a guest with me today if you'd like to introduce yourself.
0: Uh, hi, my name is Edgar. I use masculine he, him pronouns.
1: Thanks, Edgar. The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabe, Oji Ojibwe, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Metis Nation. So, Edgar, I'm so excited to have you on the show today.
0: Thank you. You
1: are one of my favorite people to talk to about polyamory.
0: Oh, well, thanks. That's very flattering. <laughs>
1: polyamory, for anyone who's listening and may not know, is the desire or practice of engaging in multiple romantic relationships with consenting adults. And we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what polyamory is, and in particular, how it can relate to feminism and how oppressive systems and the like can make its way into the polyamorous community, as it does with every community. So... Do we want to talk a little bit about kind of what mononormativity is?
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to just kind of go into a quick definition of that? Absolutely.
1: Lay it on (coughs) us.
0: Okay, so mononormativity is the kind of blanket assumption that we make most of the time without even thinking about it, particularly in things like pop culture, where when we talk about relationships, there's an assumption that it is a monogamous relationship, that Mm -hmm. you are looking for the one. Um, the person who will fulfill all of your romantic and sexual needs and be your, your one true love, the person that you should end up with forever that no one else shall put asunder.
1: Thank you. that's yeah. And it really comes out in some it really comes out in some interesting ways within society at large within the majority of people who are monogamous and it comes out in the polyamorous community as well. And this is actually, It is a form of oppression because it's just upholding the nuclear family. And what is the nuclear family? Well, that's, you know, a relationship between one man, one woman. So it's also heteronormative.
0: Uh, Yeah, a lot of that kind of sneaks into there in a a subtle way, even when um, and it can happen in in both directions. It can happen both uh, with an individual that starts down the path towards polyamory, but they still have these like subconscious assumptions that are going on in terms of how it's going to work for them. And especially I think it's it happens with uh, couples that open up their relationship as the saying goes. They have a lot of underlying assumptions a lot of the time over how that's going to work and especially the primacy of their relationship. And those assumptions very much come from a mononormative place.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you see people who are interested in opening up their relationship and it's a scary thing for them to do if they haven't done it before. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's an existing couple who's been monogamous for, you know, X number of years and then they go and then they might go forth with this. Okay, well, we'll try this. But if it doesn't work out, then we're just going to end it. And there's a definite problem with that.
0: And uh, for a lot of them, I would say, like in my experience, my observation, uh, a lot of those situations are when they say doesn't work out, they have a very low threshold for what that means, where it's like the moment I feel anything negative, it's not working out and we're going to back away and we're going to retreat back into monogamy Mm -hmm.
1: because
0: polyamory opening up our relationship is only going to be good if it's awesome all the time. So the moment there's jealousy or insecurity or I think you're a little too into that new person, then, then it's not working out anymore. Mm. And we need to just go back to the nice, safe, mononormative, socially approved relationship structure we had before.
1: Exactly. And that's a huge problem because that disposes of whoever else you may have been trying out polyamory with, like trying out polyamory. This is an activity that involves other people. So if you just decide to go back to mononormativity, then you're just essentially disposing of a person. And that's really harmful to that person. And that is a form of that's what couples privilege does.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. When you're starting down a polyamorous path and you're coming at it from the starting point of an existing previously monogamous relationship. A lot of times those subconscious underlying assumptions I was talking about involve thinking of your relationship as inherently primary. And now we talk about Mm -hmm. the term primary a lot in, in polyamorous circles and in writing and conversation in terms of a primary partner. And that's a loaded term for some polyamorists, which is a whole other thing. But for a monogamous couple that opens up this way, they're automatically starting from a place where they think of their relationship as the primary relationship. And what happens as a result of that, a lot of times, is that they think of anybody else that they start seeing as, if you like, the guest star in the story of their relationship. (laughs) So the guest star is never as important as the star, i.e. the the two partners themselves. And the moment they're a problem, well, we're just going to have to write them out of the series that is our relationship. So... That just It just goes back to what I was saying a moment ago where it's like the moment something is a problem, they just feel like, well, our emotions are more important. Our relationship is more important. Your relationship with one or both of us is only important as much as it enhances what we have. Therefore, if you're not doing that or if you come at it with your own agendas and desires and feelings, then, then you're out because now you're a threat to us.
1: High key throwing shade at unicorn hunters. <laughs> 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 yeah, you exactly just described unicorn hunting, and that is that's exactly what happens. There's yes, this, very much so. Yeah, so there's this you know usually hetero couple, a guy and a gal get together and they're usually looking for a bisexual woman to complete their third whether that's just in a sexual or in a romantic way as well
0: and somebody who is into both of them to an equal degree and is going to get serious with them at the same pace and always realizes their secondary status they're always there, right, they're there to support essentially the, the primary relationship instead of being the, like an entire individual that has like their own take on things and their own things that they want out of a relationship.
1: Exactly. So this is an extremely and the reason that they're called unicorns, these people that they're looking for, is because it's incredibly rare to find a person who wants to subject themselves to accepting the secondary status in your eyes.
0: Yeah, no, very very much so. They're nigh on mythical. And it's very much coming from, well, as Christina knows, I personally think that a lot of it comes from an outgrowth of these mononormative assumptions where couples open up. I think that they are one of the conversations I think that couples fail to have when they become polyamorous is about what happens when one of them is more successful than the other particularly for heterosexual couples, what'll happen is they'll open up, they think, oh great, both of us get to have some fun, and then one of them gets a lot of interest from potential partners and the other one doesn't. It's
1: usually the woman, actually, that gets a lot of potential interest.
0: Right, so I hesitate to make gender generalizations overall, but I will say there's some research in that direction. So a lot of times a couple opens up, it's often the woman who gets more interest, not always, I personally have been on both sides of that coin at different points in my relationship history. Sometimes everything's coming up, Edgar, and sometimes (laughs) I'm really, and sometimes I've been really struggling. And so so I've had that happen and it leads to, so on a personal level, even I who wasn't trying to find a unicorn have had that experience, that frustration of like, either I'm dating a lot and it's super easy and my partner is struggling and not getting what they want. Or, I'm struggling, I'm putting myself out there and getting nowhere, and my partner is just has like person after person who's interested in dating them. And that leads to a lot of guilt and resentment, and I think that couples who open up that are previously monogamous are, don't have that conversation, they're not prepared for it. And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. my personal take on it is that when, when that happens, when it manifests, the guilt and resentment that results leads them to retreat into a mode that allows them to date at exactly the same pace, which, is, which becomes unicorn hunting.
1: Brilliant. I especially really agree with your point on that being born of an internalized mononormativity. And I think that's a really important point. It's a conversation that a lot of people aren't having. The fact that this is actually coming from
0: It's coming from a place where it's inherently hierarchical. It's always elevating the previously existing relationship. It's always at the top of the pyramid, even if they structure regardless of how they structure their polyamory, whether it's involves multiple romantic relationships, whether it involves just being open to sexual encounters, whether it involves like swinging or other manifestations of that. Mm -hmm. A lot of that has an underlying structure that relies on pre-existing mononormativity. It's all just kind of, well, you know, it's just a variation on these, rather than reinventing the paradigm of how relationships work, it's just essentially spicing up the mononormative Mm -hmm. relationship model.
1: Unicorns are being reduced to spice.
0: Right. <laughs> they're they're just spice girls. Just
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another really interesting way that that oppression can make its way into the polyamory community is this lovely thing called OPPs. <laughs> right. Which yes. we both know and love and unfortunately, amazingly have encountered. Edgar, would you lo- would you like to tell us about OPPs?
0: I'm um, sure. <laughs> So OPP stands for, it's not, it's not like being down with OPP, for, for those of you who remember the 90s, it is not that <laughs> OPP acronym, it is a different one, it stands for uh, One Penis Policy, which is where you have a hetero couple that decides to become polyamorous, or maybe they start out as polyamorous, and they set up a rule where the penis owner in that relationship is the only penis who gets involved with, with anybody. So that leads to an inherent lopsided setup where the cis female in that relationship only gets to date other women if they're going to date other people at all. Whether Wh- she's
1: even bisexual or not. Right,
0: exactly. Regardless of, regardless of what her orientation is. So, so if she's straight, she's just kind of stuck. Whereas the guy who is presumably straight in this model gets to do exactly what he wants, which is date other women. So, it's this kind of thing where it sometimes gets rationalized as being equal-sounding on the surface because it's like, oh, well, we both get to do the same thing, date women, (laughs) but it's not actually fair and it's not actually equal. It's a way, again, for There are a number of things that I think are going on. Some of it comes from a misogynist place where it's just, oh, well, if my female partner dates a woman in this model. I don't find that threatening, but if she dates a cis male, I will find that automatically threatening because the, the just for all of those normal misogynist reasons that we're, we're all familiar with, unfortunately.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that is 100%. There's this whole male sexuality discourse and there's a lot that, and when I say discourse, it's it's just kind of a system of understanding that the general public kind of sees the world through, like so the male sexuality discourse it basically says that male sexuality is this unstoppable force it is you know right, it is yeah. <laughs> it is this unstoppable force and then women are meant to be gatekeepers and men are supposed to be competitive and then women are passive in this discourse and this means that this is just kind of the internalized understanding upon which everyone just kind of operates on so in the place of this discourse, where does lesbian love come in? Any woman-on-woman love is just not seen as competitive. It's not seen real. It's not given meaning by a male. It's not given meaning by a cis male in that situation.
0: Right. It, it, it inherently invalidates the idea of any romantic or sexual relationship between two women because it's like, oh, well, you know, two women, that doesn't really count, so that's okay. But if it's a guy, whoa, whoa. Gotta like pump the brakes on that because mm-hmm. uh, because now that's a real relationship and mm-hmm. I and that makes me scared and that and, and rather than confronting one's insecurities and jealousies and where does that come from and how do I feel about myself and how do I feel about us, you just go nope one penis policy. I am going to push that out as a possibility so as never to confront my fear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So OPPs are I don't think they're ever non-sexist. I think, like, I can't think of an instance in which that wouldn't be sexist.
0: It would be hard for me to, yeah, formulate something where that that isn't. Unless there was some
1: kind of, like, polyfidelitous situation and there was, like, a trans person involved or something like
0: that. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, if you want to, (laughs) like, spin out an exotic (laughs) scenario. uh, And, I mean, I say that because I always hesitate to... I know on a personal level, I always hesitate to make really big blanket statements Mm -hmm. because for every relationship model where I go... Well, never in a million years would I do that. I would never incorporate that into my approach to polyamory, no matter what. I will know at least one couple or set of people that have, or an individual who's had a number of relationships, who has made some version of that work. True. So I, I do know people who have had at least temporary one-penis policies that have, that have worked for them. I know I've seen mm-hmm. some writing... That has described a one penis policy as like the training wheels for a straight relationship that's mm. opening up, mm. where they go, like, oh, well, you know, while the man or both people in that relationship are working through those insecurities, we'll temporarily both agree to a one penis policy so that we can confront the insecurities first and then gradually introduce, you know, the idea of a second penis um
1: why is words edgar you're right Thank, <laughs> thanks for keeping me in check I <laughs> <laughs> always appreciate it <laughs> thanks
0: uh. to do what i can and again in terms of my personal hypothesizing and my observation of relationships over time I also think that the imbalance issue that I was mentioning before is also something that that comes into play with unicorn hunting is also something that comes into play with one-penis policies. Mm, Yeah. And when Christina was talking about how a lot of times the woman will be the person who gets more interest when a hetero couple opens up, a one-penis policy is a way to curtail that. If the woman is getting a lot of interest from men Mm -hmm. and you say like, well, it's a one-penis policy now, then some of the men in that situation will think of that as a way of leveling the playing field. So rather than having the man who's struggling to date any other women and the woman who has no trouble dating other men, you just say, Well, you're not gonna date other men. So now mm. we're we're just gonna have the same trouble dating women.
1: Yeah. I, I see that as coming to be problematic again though. Yeah, and no, absolutely. It's <laughs> not
0: because there is and this is why I think that this is the kind of uh conversation that we're talking a lot about couples opening up. I mean, there are other ways to kind of like arrive <laughs> at polyamory, but um, but, but but whether you're in a couple or not you should should if i was going to give advice i would say that a person should be prepared for lack of success for things not working out the way you want to like what do you you should have an answer to that what are you going to do when things aren't great what are you going to do when you feel crappy what are you going to do when you want to date people and it's not happening but your partner is is going out on you know a date every week You should have answers to those questions.
1: See, this is why you're one of my favorite people to (laughs) talk to about this. Thank you again for that incredibly valuable advice. Another conversation that we kind of wanted to touch on is this active debate that's kind of going on in terms of terminology Mm. in the polyamorous community. And being a feminist radio show, we thought it would be good to bring this up. So polyamory or polyamorous is often short-handed to just poly, P-O-L-Y.
0: Right. I've I've probably done it once or twice just unconsciously in the course of talking just now.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy. It's quick. But a problem that's been pointed out is that this has... So polyamory, like the literature that's really come out about it didn't happen until the last couple decades, I would say, right, obviously? Yeah,
0: the term polyamory is relatively new. Well, polyamory
1: Um, itself obviously is not new. Right.
0: The practice of it is is not new, and I mean, you know, not to go down the anthropological road, but (laughs) there are examples of non monogamous relationships that have happened throughout time, but the term polyamory is relatively new. It's only been around since about 1990. It was invented just... uh, so, yeah, a lot of the terms that go with that, some of them that we've used, some that we haven't, mm-hmm. they're relatively new and very much the North American, white, pretty privileged communities that have come up with these terms. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're applicable. They describe real things. Obviously, polyamory is a term that's applicable to this type of relationship, but it is but it is new. And, and yeah, Christina's going to talk about the controversy around the term and its mm-hmm. abbreviation in particular.
1: Yeah, yeah. So before... Th- polyamory came out this term poly was being used as a shorthand for polynesian people Hmm. yeah so essentially what a lot of polyamorous people are doing in response once they've realized this they've realized that this term is already in use you know this is this is already called for they're saying that you should instead use the shorthand poly a or poly m just so that you're not kind of taking up the same space as an already marginalized culture So you kind of touched on the prototype of the, like, successful white polyamorous community.
0: Right, yes, very much so. In terms of the discourse that happens around polyamory with the more popular books that are out there and... The few
1: examples of media that exist. There are a couple movies out there.
0: Right, almost all of them involve, generally speaking, if you wanted to sort of stereotype it, it would be white, attractive, well-off, well-educated north americans who are english-speaking who end up you know following down a path that involves just certain assumptions that go along with that just things that you're going to have trouble with or not have trouble with just use a random example a lot of times people don't take into account that dating dating more than one person is more expensive than just dating one person and so the financial privilege that comes along with that is something that isn't always touched upon because the people who are writing about polyamory are people who aren't going to have financial trouble with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Like, for example, in the TV show, uh, it was called Polyamory Married and Dating. There uh, was like yeah. this... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, we, we both have our strong feelings on it.
0: It was a very problematic series.
1: Yeah, yeah. They had this quad and they just they just had this huge house in like California and like they were just able to like have their own little commune there and have their, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever naked dance parties and like just no problem. And it's like, not everyone realistically has the space to do that.
0: Right. So yeah, Polyamory Married and Dating was a Showtime series. It, It lasted for two seasons. There was a quad that Christina just mentioned that was the only quad that was featured in both seasons. And one of the people in that quad is a prominent ish, Polyamory speaker and writer mm-hmm. named Kamala Devi. Yeah, and so yeah, and one of the things that just wasn't really explored sufficiently on that show was the way that like they had this really nice house, they could have these like really big parties, and and they they were able to like travel around and just go on these random trips just because they wanted to, and yeah. and just it's the kind of thing, and and it was just never addressed. It was just this kind of like underlying assumption that like yeah well of course of course we can do these things of course if i want to like get away with my other partner for a weekend and go up into the like the hills of california or wherever they were going (laughs) that that's just a thing you can do you don't have a job that you're obligated to come back to or anything like that you just get to do that you just get to ride on a motorcycle with that person because you feel like it (laughs) and there's never there's never anything that gets in the way of that like financial concerns or obligations that you have back home
1: Exactly. Yeah, I feel like we could you and I could easily talk for two hours about the pros and cons <laughs> of that show. Just tear it apart.
0: Yeah. 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 But no, I, I'll, I know I could. But it's yes.
1: it's super niche. I I doubt anyone will have even heard of that. But yeah, essentially, like I can think of a lot of examples where in the few examples of media, it's usually there's Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. It's three attractive white people. Yes. In Vicky Cristina Barcelona, it's three pretty much almost white like mm-hmm. one, like he's from Spain. Right. But he's he's very Mm light-skinned. And there's just tons of examples like that. And you'll see that in the polyamorous community as well. Like, as you would see in pretty much any space, you don't see a lot of people of color coming into polyamorous communities. They're just not represented well. And that's, you know, for whatever variety of reasons. You'll have more challenges faced with that as you're already marginalized based on your race. You know, it's going to be even more difficult to come out and join a community and openly acknowledge that you're taking on this marginalized relationship configuration. So that's just kind of another intersectionality that really uh, is problematic. But that being said, there is actually one really awesome example of media. She's got to have it. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's actually (laughs) that's fantastic. I would recommend that to anyone. I really enjoyed it.
0: I'll be honest, I've seen the original 80s movie, but I have not watched the more more recent Netflix series.
1: The Netflix series is better. Okay. The original movie is, is interesting. Watch it, by all means. But yeah, the show was great. The main character, she's a black, pansexual, polyamorous, like, sex-positive <laughs> badass. And she's just fantastic. Like, albeit she is still very kind of light-skinned and definitely has kind of European features. That's something that I noticed. Like, okay. uh, that's just a criticism that I have. You know, like, if you're going to do black representation, like, do black representation. But it's... right. It's a step in the right direction, but I'll say that much. And of course, I'm speaking from my perspective. Like I'm a white person, so I probably have criticisms on it that are not as nuanced and from it as right. informed. Right, S- S-
0: similar similar story. I'm also white, so I would also hesitate to yeah make pronouncements on how well the representation is going. Mm-hmm. Although on that note, I'll I'll give a shout out to a book that's actually all about these representation issues, particularly in polyamorous communities and other alternative sexuality communities. It's a book by uh, an author named Kevin Patterson. It came out last year. It's called Love is Not Colorblind. Kevin's from Philadelphia, and he also runs he runs an online site called Poly Role Models. So he offers a lot of diverse representational examples of different people and their varying approaches to polyamory. But the book, Love is Not Colorblind, is about these very issues that Christina and I have been talking about. Okay. He, uh, Ke- Kevin Patterson's an African-American author, and he, as a person of color, has had a lot of struggle with getting into communities, being accepted by them, having them listen to various concerns that he's brought up about representation and book communication, and occasionally even being ostracized from communities over bringing those things up. So the book came out of that experience, that experience of what he had uh, to directly deal with in communities. And... The way that the media would talk about him because he would get profiled by these types of articles that come out about polyamorous, what are they like? And then he would be represented in a particular way that didn't accord with his actual life. And he had a lot of frustrations going along with that. So I would really just defer to an author like that who has a lot more direct experience mm-hmm. uh, in terms of getting that opinion rather than just having like the, the two white people hi- philosophize <laughs> on this point. But uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Patterson in his book does bring up the very issue of the Polynesian population and the term oh, polyamory. Yeah. Another shout out that I would do along with Kevin Patterson on a completely different note, not on a representational note so much, is a researcher that I really like named Elizabeth Sheff. She has a couple of books. The, the book of hers that got the most attention is called The Polyamorous Next Door, which is all about polyfamilies, because uh, the core of her research was a 15-year study that she did of people who are non-monogamous and have children. So she was coming at Super it very- Super important conversations. Yes, yes, very much so. Anyone who has kids, it introduces a whole other element that mm-hmm. can uh, get very complicated in terms of how you make polyamory work in that context. But what I particularly like about Elizabeth Sheff, and she also has like a column on the Psychology Today website. That's an easy way to sort of find stuff that's by her online. What I particularly like about her is that she's one of the few people out there that's really has a data driven approach to polyamory. So rather than coming at it like this is my take on polyamory and this is the way that you should do it, and that's uh, that this is it. This is the correct answer. And Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not doing it this way, you're wrong. Elizabeth Chef is coming at it in more of an agnostic way, if you like. She's (laughs) she's looking at it. she's just like I want to see I want to see what people are doing I want to approach it from an ethnographic or anthropological viewpoint and just go like okay these are the trends these are what people tend to do you know this percentage of polyamorists tend to have their relationships going this way and as like a stats geek I really like that because she's one of the only people who actually puts it into into numbers and breaks it down and and that to me is, is really interesting I like seeing I don't want to have a prescriptive model I like the descriptive model where yeah. you kind of look at what what is it that polyamorous are doing rather than trying to tell them what they should be doing.
1: Yeah, because most of the understanding of the communities tends to be from people such as yourself who like to go out of their way and go to different cities and explore the communities and stuff like that. But it's, it's also incredibly important beyond, you know, what you can gather anecdotally to get data on it. And there's not a lot of data on polyamory. So I'm super right, glad. Right, not I'm at all.
0: And mm-hmm. like, yes, when I travel, I try to seek out the polyamory communities that are in other cities. I was just in Europe recently and I did that as an example. But yeah, but I'm just one guy and I'm not, I'm not a formal researcher. So I'm, I'm interested in that because I like to have a variety of viewpoints, but I wish there were more people like Dr. Chef that were mm-hmm. putting that out there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One final incredibly important person to reference is Kim TallBear. She's a, uh, and bear with me for the pronunciation of this, Sistan Wapeten Oyate professor at the University of Alberta, specializing in racial politics and science. Please check out her website, www.criticalpolyamorous.com. She gives an indigenous perspective to more than monogamy. We'll end off with a blessing that she wrote, May your networks of love and relations be many and not caged within settler colonial norms of rapacious individualism, hierarchies of life, and ownership of land, water, bodies, and desires. Thanks so much, Edgar, for coming on our show today. All
0: right, thanks for having me, Christina.
1: We'll close off with a bit of this song, Multi-Love by the Unknown Mortal Orchestra. About her, sunshine underneath
0: us. fearing new kinds of my control and just blaming each other. She don't want to be your man or oh, 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 woman. She wants to be your.